Well, I knew the dude was lost when I saw his fancy clothes. He missed his exit ramp about 30 miles down the road. I drew a napkin map so he could get back home. He's buying round and talking loud and he's in my danger zone. I had a lot of clients that were engaged in the gambling trade, if you want to call it a trade. And I will say this as a, as a major premise, that I never heard one of my gambling friends or clients ever say how much money they won from a guy. They always talked about what they beat a guy out of. And so my advice to people that are listening to this is just, just don't gamble unless you're a professional yourself. When I first started to practice in law in 1928, uh, my brother and my father and and uh, particularly my brother Polk, and I represented uh, most of the gamblers in Austin. As a matter of fact, there wasn't but about one serious gambler that made, uh, uh, made real good, and that was Mervyn Ash. And Mervis kept uh, uh, competition down because of uh, uh, he knew how to. He just didn't care for any opposition, and he knew that, that if uh, boys would get into it, they'd bring a little heat on him, and they'd close up all the gambling games. But anyway, Mervin was the, was the one that, that was uh, called the king bee of the gamblers. And uh, Mervin had been to the penitentiary as a young man for a bootlegging, and he found out that that was a hard way to make a living, so he uh, got into the gambling game. Uh, he was somehow another kin of the Hirschfield family in Austin. He was Yiddish and uh, in his extraction. But uh, some of the boys that worked for Gaten was uh, worked for Mervyn was Gaten Berlin. Gaten was sort of a runner for him, and he didn't make a lot of money, and he didn't try to run a game on his own. And then old Fatty Wright was mixed into the gambling game too. Fatty was was uh, he found out that land carpets for Scarboroughs was a hard way to make a living. But I'm going to tell you about uh, one thing that happened up at uh, Mervyn Ash had a little old. A lodge uh, up on the river there, close to where St. Stephen's School is now. And that was back when Fort St. Stephen's School was put in. And uh, they had uh, uh, ga uh, gambling uh, nights up there about once a week. All the uh, poker players in Austin would get up up there, they're gamblers, and gamble with each other. And so they uh, invited Polk to come up there. And he is their lawyer, and he is their friend. And so Polk just figured they wouldn't cheat him. Surely they wouldn't treat their own lawyer. Well, they got up there, and Polk got to drinking a little more than he should. He's having a good time. And he said he kept on losing, and and he didn't take but $25, up there with him. He figured that would take care of it. And, and uh, before he knew it, he had four $500 worth of checks in the game. And uh, he come home, and, and the next morning after the, the party, well, I met him at the office. He's down there early. He's figuring out how he's going to get a hold of money to cover these checks. And while we're sitting there morning, he's telling me what had taken place, that he had lost his four $500 up there with his gambling friends. And so old... Uh, well, we were crying then, figuring out where the money's going to come from. Old Roy Snout's come into the office. And he invited himself in where Polk and I were. And he said, Polk said, you sure didn't make it hard on me last night. He said, uh, uh, there, there's no such thing as an honest gambler. These boys might be your friends and you might be the lawyer, but they're going to cheat. They cheat their grandma. He said, now, you sure made it hard on me. He said, last night I had to cheat for you and me both. And said, I, I want all your checks back, and I'm going to give them to you here. But he said, don't you ever gamble within those boys anymore. He said, you haven't got a chance with them. And Roy was nice enough to, to do that. And, of course, we made it even with Roy a little bit later on. He got involved in a couple of shootings of one kind or another, and I'll go into those in a few minutes. I'm talking about Roy himself. Uh, well, I might as well go into it now. Well, like I said, Buck, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Jack Duval and, and, uh, and uh, 
Roy were kind of partners in this game, uh, helping Andy lose his money or taking it away from him. And uh, some bad blood came up between them somehow or another. They, they didn't trust each other. And, and Jack Duval was a tremendous man. He was a, a brother to old Buck, who I have a tape about him in my City Choppers tape. But uh, they had a little falling out with some old boy from San Antonio. And, and of course, they all wore pistols all the time. And Roy and Jack were in, in the, the uh, shine part over at the Driscoll Hotel on 7th Street one evening, a little late, just before dark. And this guy from San Antonio that they were gunning for each other and to come in. And Jack happened to be on the stand getting his shoes shined, and this guy come in. And there was quite a little bit of shooting took place, and, and Jack uh, uh, was, was killed. Anyway, they took his body on out to the, to the hospital, and Dr. Will Watt uh, probed around, and he got the bullets out, and... Uh, the law investigated a little bit, and, of course, Jack had a pistol on him, and they figured this old boy had done a pretty good job by getting rid of Jack because the law didn't have any love for him, and, and uh, so uh, they didn't do anything. But in the, in the meantime, uh, uh, Will Watt made the report that uh, this old, old Jack had uh, two different caliber slugs in his, in his body, and there's a question where the other slug come from. Well, all that I can say is that Roy Snouse did go out and throw his pistol into the lake that night. And uh, I don't know whether Duval people know. Uh, I guess they they smell what happened. But anyway, Jack's the dead man, and he had two different caliber slugs in his in his body, and there's only one guy from San Antonio shooting at him. Then uh, uh, down on the land that I had on Bee Creek, that I told uh, Jim Novi. Uh, Jim Novi had put up a lodge there, and just before the war, and he was having a, had a little love nest. It really cost him his wife and cost him his family, and so he had a sign note on it and decided he'd let the the. Uh, uh, lease it out to somebody and I heard that he's going to let it out to a nightclub and old Roy Snouch was going to be the kind of mixed into it and they was going to run some gambling out there well that's right in the middle of my uh, residential area and I sent word to, to, to Jim through his lawyer Mr. Will Hart that if he did that my, I had a condition subsequent in my deed that the title would revert to me and I, I just wasn't going to have any any commercial use being made of my property out there well the first night they opened up it was supposed to be very secretive and old Roy Snouch was out there and some old boy from Houston was out there gambling, and they wound up in a fight, and Royce now shot this old boy. And I didn't know about it. It came out in the paper the next morning about this uh, guy being shot in a gambling game and at this club on Bee Creek. It wasn't supposed to be open. Well, uh, I had a big lawsuit and had Governor Moody represent me to take his land back away from, from Jim Novi, and uh, it went on right the time I was in the war. We didn't settle it till after 1945, and I come back, well, Mr. Uh, Governor Moody said he didn't care about getting anything out of it. Jim was a pretty good man, and he was under stress at the time, so we made a deal with Jim where we'd settle the case if he would give $2,000 to charity. And uh, Jim wanted to know if it made any difference to you know, what charities we give them to. He gave them to. He said, no, it didn't make any difference to us at all. And if you do that, then I would release this condition subsequently and, uh, and let him win the lawsuit. So he gave $500. No, he gave uh, uh, he gave to 10 charities, $200 to, to 10 different little Jewish charities. And so Jim made money out of the deal in the long run. That Cedar Crest was open about that time, and I'll go back and start on it. I had bought the City Crest property and rehabilitated it and made a real nice club out of it. And uh, he was laying, he told me that he was laying for uh, North Milliken and Theo Davis and Hiram Reed. They'd been uh, gambling a little bit and going out of town to Houston, Fort Worth, and Galveston, and San Antonio losing their money. And, and Mervyn was the impression that uh, that kind of money ought to stay in Austin. So he wanted to give them an opportunity to spend it. Well, Mervyn was smart enough to where when he put his club up that he, uh, he, uh, uh, 
give a land to Calcasieu Lumber Company so there'd be a little local money invested in it. And then Polk and I, whenever it got up to where what uh, Mervyn said, when he got the nut off, that was the cost of running the thing and putting it up, then Polk and I was going to get, as attorney's fees and retainers, around 10%. And so that could, uh, Mervyn in, in insisted that that would be quite a little sum when the time come. Well, anyway, the, the first night that they got it open, it was a beautiful club, I'll tell you. And it, uh, her, uh, everything was free, like all the gambling houses at that time in Texas. The people that were invited in, they got free food and free whiskey. And they hoped, uh, of course, uh, the establishment hoped they drank more whiskey than was good for them. And then they'd spend more money on the gambling tables. So uh, uh, Mervyn had the finest of food you ever saw. He even sent to New Orleans to get the bread that they served. And, uh, but Mervyn was in on, on the rackets, I'm pretty sure, because at least he didn't have them coming in here bothering him. And so, and he had an old boy, as I mentioned a while ago, that was backing him, but had a cut on the silver slipper in Miami. And uh, this old boy told me one time that was backing him, he was bald-headed, I remember, and he looked just like an old country cowboy. But uh, he told me that he was born up around Denison or McKinney somewhere in North Texas, and that his daddy was a farmer, and that uh, the old man put him out to chopping cotton and chopping corn one day in the summertime, and he chopped about a half a day, and he figured that was not his cup of tea. So he decided he'd going to get into something else, and he left home, and the easiest thing he could find to do and make money was gambling. Well, of course, there's a long way between uh, realizing that and then finding being a good gambler, but this old boy turned out to be a good one. But anyway, let's go back to this first night that we had the Cedar Crest open and of course i was up there and the thing was just absolutely loaded uh, uh, mervyn had uh, issued out the invitations to everybody wanted to come and of course it's an open gambling house and it just rained cats and dogs and nobody left and till one or two o'clock in the morning they all dabbled around with the gambling games they had dice and they had roulette and they had chuckalock and and it, it looked just like a, a place at uh, las vegas uh, i didn't uh, know about las vegas till 20 or 30 years later but that that was my first impression of it and Mervyn had an old boy named Cy Million was uh, on the dice table. And it was fascinating to watch Cy take uh, a, a string of uh, 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 one dollar, one dollar silver pieces. Because in those days, and you bet two or three dollars on a dice game, you was getting pretty high cotton around Austin. But old Cy would take ten or twelve of these silver dollars in a stack, and if um, three or four people won around the table, he'd drop two, three, four off, just, just shaking them. Just like you shake a salt shaker and shake them out. And he was really fascinating. And so I was a real clean looking fine man. And he uh, lived in this little old house that was just uh, uh, west of, I mean just east of where the uh, county line is now. You see the little old rock house up there that I built. And that was Sire's headquarters. And as a matter of fact, I made a deed to Sire to it. Now, Mervyn didn't want his name mixed up in anything. So I made the deed to that house to Sire, although it belonged to Mervyn. Well, it so happened that... Uh, that night, uh, Mervyn didn't make a lot of money. There was a whole lot of eating and drinking down and very little gambling. But everybody had a big time, and it started out with a rousing success. Well, uh, night after night, it went on. He had to keep it open every night. And, of course, there wasn't enough people in Austin to, to populate the thing every night in a week. But finally, about we went by about a month or two, and, and uh, old Mervyn called Polk and I one night about 12 o'clock. And uh, he said, uh, he said, boys, we finally got uh, got our nut paid for. He said, oh, Theo Davis was out here tonight, and, and of course he didn't bring any money with him because he was, uh, he, uh, no gambler ever carries any money with him. They just take the checkbook because they know they're going to win. Well, Theo got out there, and Mervyn uh, was uh, kind of kin to him so far as race is concerned, and because Theo was a uh, Yiddish also, you know, from, um, he was Nelson Davis's adopted son. 
and Theo got in his cups, and he he going to beat old Mervyn. It's a personal matter. Well, he didn't beat Mervyn on his dice table or anything else. He lost $13,000, and, and when he got through, he gave old Mervyn uh, a check for $13,000. And so that was, uh, I think it cost Mervyn about three or $4,000 in, in those days to open that thing up. So Mervyn was in, he, he'd finally got the nut paid, and he had some money. And so... Uh, then uh, the next morning when uh, Theo sobered up and found out what he'd done, well, he told Mervyn that it'd take him a little time to, to kind of get his money together. Of course, Theo at that time didn't have more than $100,000 in the bank, but he, he was playing a game. He, he knew how to do it. And so in about two weeks, Mervyn called Polk and I back again. He said, boy, said, we're, we're out of luck. He said, uh, Theo got himself appointed as chairman of the grand jury. And he suggested to me that maybe it'd be better for him to settle this gambling debt he had off about six or seven thousand dollars, a half price. So uh, Mervyn said, well, "I don't have a whole lot of choice about that matter." And so we had to settle with Theo for half of what it cost. Now, just going back to Theo Davis, he's one of the finest men I ever knew. He married Judge Bat's daughter, Judge Bat's daughter, and. Uh, I remember that uh, when there's a little trouble at the Capital National Bank about 10 years ago with one of the officers down there said he'd making loans that weren't good and, and uh, the, all of them make loans that are not good and the man that he's t- uh, t- they're talking about was one of the finest bankers I knew of. He's personal, he's big to you. But anyway, his loan uh, uh, record was not too good and so the directors or the federal government or somebody said that they're going to have to make some changes. And I understand that in the director's meeting, this man was a friend of Theo Davis, and Theo said, well, if there's any bad loan that this man's made, you charge him against my account. Now, he was a good man, and he stayed by his friends. And I left Theo Davis till the time of his death about three or four years ago. There was another time, I don't know exactly whether it was in Cedarcrest going on or not, I think it wasn't, but Mervyn Ash ran a bookie shop. He ran all the gambling in Austin, more or less. And this bookie shop was up on the second floor of the old Hancock Opera House, and that was on the north side of 6th Street there uh, between uh, Congress Avenue and and uh, and uh, Colorado Street where the parking lot for the Capital National Bank is now. But up on the second floor there he had this bookie shop and, and of course Boss Thorpe was the chief of police and old Ted Klaus was the man that's supposed to walk up and down the streets uh, the undercover man and they all knew this run it but as long as the Mervyn kept it uh, uh, nice and didn't let anybody lose too much money they, they just didn't find him. And so in the afternoons, uh, Senator A.E. A. Wood and one or two of the doctors and the dentists that had a little more money than they knew what to do with and would come down there and play the horses after the, after the uh, uh, stock market closed. But uh, then uh, one or two of the district attorneys, one of them down south of, uh, of the area around Austin, come up there and play horses too. But uh, Marvin had a clean house there, and so he, uh, he was doing real well. He had the finest uh, Buick automobile, and he had the horse that he'd ride around in the uh, places. And, and uh, Mervyn could walk up and down the streets, and he was respected because he had a bank account in every, every, every bank. But his undoing was his own vanity. And uh, at that time, the Covert Buick Company was located right at the corner of, of Guadalupe Street and, and uh, West 6th Street, where they're tearing the building down now. That was originally built by the Covert Automobile Company. And Coots Covert was the oldest Covert boy, and he was kind of the ramrod. And Clarence and Dan, the other boys, were a little younger. But Coots was the, was the ramrod. And uh, one afternoon, about 5 o'clock, when everybody's getting off work, well, Mervyn was down there, and it, the, uh, it's a Buick pick, to pick up his car. It was a brand-new Buick. He bought the newest Buicks that came out in those days, and he had bought it, and I think in those days you could buy them for about $3,000. So, uh, uh, Boss Thorpe, the chief of police, had a, a Buick also. 
And it was a little older than Mervyn's. It was just about as old as you get, because Boss, in my opinion, is one of the finest officers that I ever knew, and one of the finest men. He was just a pure gold, but he had enough common sense to know that certain things could be done, and it didn't hurt anybody that could that uh, like uh, this gambling. It didn't bother him a bit, and he let slot machines run a bit until they got to burglarizing stores and beating each other up over the thing. But anyway, that afternoon... Well, Mervyn was down there getting his uh, new car serviced and getting it out, and, and it so happened that Boss was having his car worked on that same afternoon. And so Boss got off at the city hall, and he walked down to the Colbert Beer Company to get his car to take it home. And uh, uh, Mervyn made the time of day with him, and Coots was out there talking with him, and um, uh, Mervyn told Boss, said, Boss, look at this new automobile I got. said, uh, what do you think about it? Well, of course, Boss was very polite, and he said uh, he, he didn't want to be embarrassed by knowing that the man had made his money uh, outside the law, but he said, uh, Mervyn, it's a fine-looking automobile. He said, do you like it? And uh, Boss said, of course I like it. And then uh, Mervyn turned to Coots Covert. He said, Coots, run with one of these out and let Boss have it. Well, boy, that's when the whatchamacallit hit the fan. Old Boss, he grabbed that phone, and he called the city hall, and he told Ted Krause to get down there and nail that door of that bookie shop old Mervyn had up tight, and that put Mervyn out of the business of gambling for a while. Now, he had to go undercover again. But on account of him in public, offering to buy an automobile for the chief of police, he lost his rabbit's foot on the industry. Begging for a sure enough EMS ride home. He's a, and he's in the danger zone.